Hi there, good evening. This is the Enviro Show here on SAFM, the very green hour. Welcome, I'm Nancy Richards. Team tonight is uh, Kim Winter and Cassie Lowers. And tonight we're going golfing, fishing and smoking. And how environmentally friendly was the State of the Nation address? Well, starting off then with smoking and the environmental impact of cigarettes on people and the planet, did you know, for example, that with just over one billion smokers in the world, trillions of cigarette butts filled with toxic chemicals get stubbed out in the environment every day and they are non-biodegradable? Well, it's just one of the scary facts, never mind how many kilometres of paper gets used in their production every day. So we're going to be speaking to Dr. Yusuf Saloji, he's the Executive Director of the National Council Against Smoking, for some insight. Also get some insight into just how environmentally friendly was the State of the Nation address last week. According to WWFSA, it could really have done better in addressing some pressing issues, certainly around mining and water. We'll be talking to an environmental reporter with the M&G Sipo Kings. Then we thought we'd relax a bit and just go fishing with leading author and fisherman Henny Krauss. He'll be giving us uh, the ABC of fishing as it does or doesn't impact our waters and the fish themselves. He's also the author of a book called Catch It and Cook It. So hopefully he's also got a fishing, a cooking fishing tip up his sleeve as well. Lastly, golf in our Green Goodies series. We'll be hearing about an environmentally friendly hydrogen fueled golf cart. And don't forget, if you'd like to let us know what green goodies you've got, you can do it. Contact us at enviro, enviro at safm.co.za. But having said that, it seems a bit ironic about having an environmentally green golf cart because how environmentally friendly is golf anyway, especially with all those water-thirsty courses? So we'll be getting a bit of an indication on that with Jeremy Westgarth-Taylor of Water Rhapsody. So don't forget, if you've got a green goodie or green anything else that you'd like to share with us here on the Enviro Show, you can let us know. We're at the at enviro at safm.co.za or find us on Facebook, Enviro Show on SAFM. Midday Live is your lunchtime news fix. We bring you 60 minutes of news around the globe. Follow the top stories of the hour. We launched this initiative under the Sisutu name Aga. In the Nguni languages of our country, Aga, which can be interpreted in English to mean build. Let's build the country of our dreams. A lot of people have asked me questions over the weekend about, but surely it wasn't premeditated. Mm. We didn't plan this. The planning only has to be 30 seconds in advance, essentially, for it to be premeditated. In other words, if I turn around to you and say, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to shoot you. And you don't do what I say, and then I shoot you. That's premeditated. Join us between 12 and 1 weekdays and stay ahead of the pack. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Are you a fan of PSL soccer or even better, a supporter of a PSL club? Whichever you are, no matter how deep your involvement, you cannot afford to miss out on the conversation that is for the first time bringing together in one community, in one conversation, all the PSL football lovers. As if the conversation alone is not enough, there will be competitions with prizes to be won. Be a part of this conversation for you not to be left out. You cannot be a part of this conversation, nor can you participate in the competitions and win prizes if you are not registered. To register, dial star 120 star double four double five hash now. Sport, talk, music, drama, news, music, lifestyle, news, talk on SAFM 104 to 107. 
Right, first up then here on the Enviro Show, well, we know that smoking causes cancer in humans, but according to some very scary statistics, it seems like it would be one big environmental cancer too. For instance, worldwide, approximately 10 million cigarettes are purchased every minute, 15 billion are sold every day, and upwards of 5 trillion are produced and used on an annual basis. How scary is that? 4.5 trillion cigarette butts thrown away each and every year, filling up ashtrays, rubbish bins, uh, at best, at worst, pot plants, gutters, landfills and the sea, and they are not biodegradable. Five trillion cigarette filters weigh approximately two billion pounds. Oh my goodness. Well, we have Dr. Yusuf Saluji, Executive Director of the National Council Against Smoking, on the line. Hi, Dr. Saluji. Hello. Nice to have you with us, and I'm sure you didn't need to hear all those statistics all over again. Very, very scary, scary facts. So, environmentally speaking, aside from the air pollution, you know, the, the damage that smoking is doing to human beings, they're having a serious impact on our environment. Yes, absolutely. And if I can give a South African perspective to that, of course, you firstly talked about the environment, the effect of tobacco smoke in the environment. It's the single largest pollutant of the indoor environment that we have. And of course, passive smoking causes lung cancer, heart disease, and other things. But in terms of discarded cigarettes, every day in South Africa, over 63 million cigarette butts are discarded. This makes an enormous litter problem. And what we find, and studies have shown, that in fact, um, it enters into our sewage system, into the uh, rubbish system, and it actually pollutes both the coastal system as well. One of the largest, uh, you know, when they collect litter on the beach, the thing they find most of is cigarette butts. Mm -hmm. And those cigarette butts, when they enter into the ecosystem, will also pollute and kill marine life. Because remember, the butts have also got unburnt tobacco on them. And so all of the toxic chemicals which are in tobacco smoke, like nicotine, which is an end poison, or mercury, lead, and other heavy metals, which are, which are also found in cigarettes, will be in the cigarette butt, will, will pass into uh, any environment where they are there and will dilute that and also cause harm to, the, uh, to marine life. Mm. So they're bleeding out toxins from the minute they're stubbed out. There are toxins... Absolutely. Mm. They, they've done in, in studies where they've checked uh, the toxicity, toxicity of substances, they find that a single cigarette put into water with a small fish in it will kill the fish. So the toxins that are leached from the uh, uh, cigarette butt are sufficient to kill fish. It's, it, it really is quite frightening. I mean, when you think that, I mean, I suppose that the point of the cigarette butt is that it is a filter, so it's absorbing all the toxins. So I suppose those at least are not going into the lungs of the, the person that's smoking them. But what's of concern is that, aside from all the toxins, the actual uh, substance of the butt itself is not biodegradable, as far as I understand it, or is it? No, it's not. And in fact, it's not biodegradable, although it can be broken down by UV light, by sunlight. But a discarded cigarette butt will remain in the environment for up to 25 years. So we're talking of a long-term problem. 
you know, when you th when you say that the largest amount of litter that you find on a beach are cigarette butts, somehow they sort of get ignored. You know, we talk a lot about plastic bottles and uh, flip flops and that sort of thing, but one you know dis discounts cigarette butts. They sort of assume that they aren't really anything, and yet they are. What happens to them? You say that they go into sewage, into landfills. Are they? Does anybody actually collect them and and put them collectively yeah. together? No, no, that, that, that's part of the problem, is that there is no systematic way of collecting them and and uh, and destroying them. So they literally just stay where they are, they go into landfills and on beaches and people smoke. They remain on, in the sand and they'll remain there for the next 25 years. Part of the problem is, of course, the children playing in the sand may pick up a cigarette butt and eat it, and then they'll be poisoned as well. Uh, and then it gets washed out to sea. Yeah. So it, it doesn't get destroyed, it just remains there for, uh, as a problem for decades. Bit of a concern, um, a bit of a concern that, uh, as you say, if you put one single cigarette butt in water with a fish, it will eventually kill the fish. So if cigarette butts are, are falling into, never mind the sea, our rivers, are they doing a lot of damage? The answer is. Probably yes, but it's one of those areas where uh, there hasn't been extensive studies done to see what the impact of um, of cigarette butts being disposed of into rivers, what effect it has on uh, on the fish and, and other yeah. things. So it's an area which which needs further research. But the preliminary evidence certainly suggests that it is harmful. Yes. Let's move on from the cigarette butts and let's move on up the cigarette itself because I, I think I read somewhere the vast amount of paper that's used in the manufacture of cigarettes, uh, you know, uh, 15 billion sold every day, X amount of million um, produced by the minute. The paper that's used for cigarettes themselves, is that, uh, uh, is that a particular type of paper? Does that have any, anything harmful in it? Well, I mean, the cigarette paper by itself it seems to be okay. Um, I mean, obviously, screens are destroyed in the manufacturing of the paper. But then what the cigarette companies add to the paper, if you think about it, a cigarette, once lit, doesn't stop burning. It continues to burn right until it gets to the filter. And the reason it does that is because the tobacco industry adds nitrates and other chemicals to the, to the uh, cigarette paper to make sure that once lit, the, the cigarette will continue. These are called burn accelerants, which will continue to burn. And again, um, there are potential problems with, uh, with the nitrates that are being introduced and discarded. And then, of course, the other thing with cigarettes is because they add accelerants to cigarettes, if a cigarette is thrown away out of a car window or into the bush or somewhere else, remember the fire in Cape Town, that table mountain that was started by cigarettes, well, in South Africa, 5% of all fires uh, are caused by discarded smoking material. And that causes something like 45 million rands of damage, and that's in South Africa alone. So it's also destructive to the environment when discarded in the bushes and start fires, etc. Yeah, and we haven't even got onto the packaging, which is the silver foil, the boxes themselves, and the cellophane that goes around it. It goes on and on and on. One of the things that I think is also possibly a problem is the farming of tobacco itself. I don't know how much tobacco farming there is done here in South Africa. What percentage of is it of, of our agricultural output? 
Uh, well, it's a very small percentage of our agricultural output. About There used to be about 18,000 farmers in, uh, in South Africa. Sorry, 1,800 farmers in South Africa. At the moment, there's only about 150 farmers, in, in fact, probably less than that. And that is because tobacco farming in South Africa has, has uh, the value of it has decreased. It's easier for the cigarette manufacturers to buy tobacco from Zimbabwe and Malawi rather than from South Africa. But the environmental harm caused by tobacco farming are enormous, especially in poor African countries. Um, the first thing about tobacco is that it, it depletes the soil. It takes as much nutrients out of the soil that, uh, more than most other uh, crops. And so there's heavy pesticides used with tobacco. And the result of that is that the pesticides leach off the tobacco farm and pollute rivers and waters. And I've had farmers in South Africa tell me that their neighboring farmers who were growing tobacco resulted in pollution of the, uh, of the local water streams and you get algae growing because of the high use of pesticides. And mm. so you had those kinds of problems there. But as I said, unfortunately, tobacco leaches a lot and takes a lot of the nutrients out of the soil. So after a few years of growing tobacco, you can't grow anything else on, on that land anymore. And, the result, and what farmers who need to continue growing tobacco do is they cut down virgin soil, they cut down forests and grow tobacco there. So you've got that leading to deforestation, the removal of native forests. And in addition to that, the tobacco leaf, once it is picked, needs to be dried and cured before it can be sold to the manufacturers. And one of the most common forms of drying is, is to use um, heat. Uh, and especially for cigarettes, they use, it's called fuel-cured tobacco. Again, poor tobacco farmers who can't afford electricity will cut down native forests. The Miembo forests in, in, in Malawi have been severely depleted because forests are cut down to produce, provide wood for curing tobacco. And the other aspect of this is that if attempts are made to re replace the old Miembo forests, they replace them with fast-growing eucalyptus trees. And this changes the whole ecology of the environment. The birds, etc., which are used to the old, uh, old wood, now find that you, you're getting these fast-growing trees, which uh, use a lot of water to deplete the water table at the same time. And so you're getting a, a, a great change in the ecology of the area as well. It feels as if there is absolutely no good news whatsoever. But just lastly, I'm just thinking, certainly here in South Africa, where we have huge smoking restrictions, uh, I can't help feeling that the number of smokers must have dwindled. Uh, certainly, I think I read that in America, there's been a reduction in the amount of cigarette butts that they're finding as a result of there being fewer smokers. Do we see any sort of measure of decline? In fact, this is the really, really good news that we have. The government's tobacco control policies are working. And we find that the numbers of smokers in South Africa have, has decreased tremendously. Back in 1994, one in three adults, 33% of adults were smoking. We are now down to about 20, 21%, one in five. So we've seen a substantial, almost a third, uh, one in three smokers have now stopped smoking. And of course, because they stopped smoking, the pollution that they cause, the uh, demand for tobacco and the environmental harm will be reduced as well. And that is really one of the really, really good good stories from South Africa is that the government's tobacco control policies have worked. 
although they need revision now and renewal because the tobacco industry has found ways to overcome some of those policies. Mm. Nonetheless, for each and every cigarette that's being put out right now, it's going to be 25 years before that cigarette butt finally disappears off the earth or into the earth. Absolutely. Scary stuff. Um, if anybody would like to find out more, uh, if they dare Google, will they find information on the website? Yes, actually they can Google and they'll find it. But of course, let me also just give you a telephone number for those people who might want to stop smoking or those people who need more information. Yeah. We have what is called the quit line. Uh, can I give the telephone number? Yes. It's 011, it's a Johannesburg number, yeah. 720-3145. 011-720-3145. And we'll happily provide people with either more information or... Uh, if those who want to quit smoking, we'll have them stop smoking. <laughs> the good news and the better news. Dr. Yusuf Salaji, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank Take you care. very much. Pleasure. Dr. Bye. Yusuf Salaji, he's the Executive Director of the National Council Against Smoking. Well, if that wasn't enough to put you off, I don't know what. But if you would like to find out more, you if you'd like to quit or find out more information of what you just heard, give them a call. The number is 11 well, I'm not sure if President Jacob Zuma is a smoker. In fact, I, I wonder what the smoking regulations really are in Parliament. I remember uh, a president, F, former President F.W. de Klerk was a bit of a heavy smoker, so I'm not sure if that swayed things there. But I imagine that that would have been fairly low down on the priority list for this year's State of the Nation address, given the recent events that have shocked the country. But how much were priority? But how much of a priority were matters of the environment uh, given for the for the address? Well, on the line we have environmental reporter with the Mail and Guardian. He's Sipo Kings. Hi, Sipo. Hi, Nancy. How are you doing? Excellent, excellent. Nice to have you with us. So, were you there? Thanks for having me. Were, well, it's a pleasure. Were you there, glued to the State of the Nation address, l listening specifically for issues of in the environment? It doesn't say much. I mean, in, in comparison to the huge excitement the world had over Obama's State of the Nation, and, you know, he fully went to environmental issues, Zuma's environment issues a sort of, you know, record of what we've done the last year. It wasn't no announcements, nothing exciting. So for, for journalists, it was quite a... I don't think many actually wrote about it because there was no meat. Because there was nothing, nothing to say. Yeah. What, 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 if anything, did he touch on? Well, he talked about the Green Fund, which half of it has been spent, but I mean, we knew that would happen because it's over two years. And that's got a, an exciting project by the Department of Environmental Affairs worth $800 million over two years. And if you're a municipality or a government entity, you get to ask for money to do some high school projects. Around. So it, it's a nice story. It's a nice project, but, you know, it's, it's last year's story as well. Okay. Nonetheless, yeah. nonetheless, fifty percent of it has been spent. Well, we'll come back to that. Yeah. Let's let's look at what you feel should have been there. Well, I don't know. Until we have the the budget and we know where money is going, we can't really say, you know, what what's on the what's the issue. I mean, he did talk about the the very exciting developments in the um, the independent power producers program and in renewable energy. So he gave you know, two whole sentences, as it were, to that. Because a lot of these projects are breaking ground now as we speak. So, you know, it's the one tangible benefit of the government's environmental programs. 
But besides from that, I don't know, he, he could have said more about rhinos, maybe. I mean, mm. about the progress they're making or what what they do to make this year less catastrophic than last year because it's quite a newsworthy issue, both here and overseas. Yeah. Just going back to the independent power producers, I mean, that's an area that that one would have imagined perhaps would have got a little bit more uh, a little bit more flesh on the bones there because simply because it's job creation it's innovation and is that not an area where part of the green fund would be going i think the green fund is more for for municipal based things oh, whereas okay. yeah all the money from this is you know, directly from funders so you know people but then escom promises to buy the electricity. But, I mean, like you said, it deserves more than... I think it actually is one sentence where he talks about 28 projects going solar and small hydro. It's exciting stuff, you know? If you want to fire up children's imagination, you should say, you know, look at the cool stuff we're doing. Look at your local neighborhood and see a solar panel going up or a wind turbine. Mm. Get people excited in science and, well, environment. But he didn't do sort of a dull... Yes. And as somebody who's following, you know, following all these issues, uh, is there a sort of a feeling out there amongst the, all these little pockets of independent people who are trying to encourage renewable energy? Is there a feeling that there's a lack of interest? Are they, is there a sense of frustration? Well, I got that from the, the state of the nation. A few people were saying, well, most of the people I talked to are saying that, you know, they felt ignored because we have had this exciting thing. And if you think... Two years ago, this was a dream, you know, the independent power producers and renewable energy. It was, we thought of it and we said, oh, you know, it'll be another government project. But we've come this far, it's quite incredible. And people are saying, you know, why not talk it up? Why not shout about it? Mm. That's the sort of impression I got from people. I suppose the big one that I, I'm sure a lot of people, especially in you know in the wake of the mining in Darba, might have been uh, interested to hear a little bit more about was fracking which, you know, the moratorium yeah. has been lifted on that. As far as I know, no mention of that at all? Yeah, definitely. I mean, straight after the State of the Union, I think the WWF released a thing saying, you know, that he's ignored huge issues. And one, the main one they talked about was fracking. And they're saying, well, you know, give some guidance, give, give anything. And that's a bit of a problem because it's... He talks about, you know, the energy future of the country, and then he doesn't mention this game-changer, which one side really, really likes, and the other side says is catastrophic. But maybe it's too much of a political hot potato to, mm. to talk about in the state of the nation. Because the government really, you know, doesn't have a, a side they haven't taken yet. They've said, we'll see what, what prospecting tells us. So would we be right in thinking that fracking is currently sort of sitting on the fence, or, or, or is it a case of, well, just let's not talk about it and let it just go ahead? I think that's generally, you know, until what, what um, the departments have said is that until we actually know how much there is under the Kuru and what, you know, how easy it is to get to it, you know, the logistics of the process, they won't make a decision either way until that's clear. I mean, given the go-ahead for prospecting, to look for what's there. But, yeah, until that date, they're not going to say either way firmly what their position is. So I think that's why he avoids this explanation. Yeah, yeah. And the rhino issue, of course, is huge, and it seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. What would you have liked to have seen happen in, in terms of the rhino poaching? I mean, it's, is it possible for them to throw any more money at it? Yeah, I don't... I mean, as far as rhinos going... I, I, I really do think that Bob and Environmental Affairs are doing as much as it possibly can. They've signed 
they hounded Vietnam to sign a, a bilateral agreement. They put so much, of, you know, so many of the resources, a lot of funding, which people would say you could put into, you know, communities that don't have water and sanitation that they put into the Rhino. So I can't imagine they could do more, but it would be nice in the state of the nation maybe to be firm and, like, point a finger or shout people or say, like, you know, neighbors like Mozambique, where a lot of it is traffic, say, we don't think it's acceptable that you don't do much. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, be indignant. It would be nothing to be indignant. An, an indication that we care. Yeah. Yeah. We're just lastly going back to the Green Fund. Uh, Green Fund, eight hundred million over two years. You say fifty percent of it has been said. Let's, let's end with some good news. Where has that money gone so far? Anything that we can get excited about? No, I mean it's not not big new stuff, but it's all sorts of little projects in municipalities where they want to try, you know, maybe biogas or biomass or you know little projects that they mm. could generate their own electricity or help out people who are living off the grid but they wouldn't otherwise be able to get that money out of the municipal infrastructure grant. So they can go to the department and say, you know, give us some cash and see how it works. So cumulatively, I suppose it makes quite a difference, but on a on a one-to-one, if you talk about each project, you know, it's not a national story. Yeah. We'll see. I, I mean, the, the idea, I suppose, is that the expertise learned from that in each municipality will spark more. So... People will have done something and they'll go, oh, it's not quite difficult, or mm. it makes, we can make money out of it. And then they start building on that, and then you get, yeah, catalyzing effect. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is it, is it only going to be a one-off two year, 800 million over two years? I mean, 800, in the big picture, two years is very short. 800 million yeah. is not a, not a lot. Is it, going to be, is it going to be rolled out continually? And it depends on how many jobs it eventually creates. You know, mm. The Department of Environmental Affairs can go back and say, this is fantastic, we created 20,000 jobs or whatever the number would be. Let's do it again. Then the Treasury might be willing to say, okay, well, you know, it's job creation, we did job creation, and there's a spin-off that you're making communities sustainable, we'll go for it. But, uh, yeah, it all depends. I mean, it all depends on priorities. But yes. maybe the budget this year will say, It'll probably be in the budget next year after it's all happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, see, I can hear a sort of despondency in your voice. So quite clearly, <laughs> you were more than a little bit disappointed. Well, we can hope, only hope for better times. But as I say, right at the beginning, there have been uh, some pretty high-profile things going on in the country, which I suppose may have yeah. uh, may have rebalanced yeah. things a little. But if we aren't get the balance right in planetary terms, we're, we're not going to have a society to worry about. Sipo, thank you very much for joining us. Very best of luck. Thank you. Yes, and thanks for having me. Bye. Pleasure. Environmental reporter with the Mail and Guardian, Sibo King, is right here on The Enviro Show. Join Young Bright Minds in conversation on SAFM from Monday the 18th to the 25th of February as they prepare for the Net Bank and Old Mutual Budget Speech Competition. The competition encourages university students from around the country to engage in socio-economic debate, giving talented rising South Africans an opportunity to participate in the national conversation. Winners of the 2013 Net Bank and Old Mutual Budget Speech Competition will be announced by the Minister of Finance, Praveen Gordon on the evening of the 27th of February after his budget speech. Tune in as the talk shop will be broadcasting live from this event where we will honor these young bright minds. First with the news, insights, analysis and debate. Well, moving on from the gloomy stuff, let's move on to fishing. 
Well, you know what I'm thinking, actually, that probably anyone with a fishing rod and a tin of bait and a couple of hours to kill will probably tell you that there's absolutely no better way to appreciate the environment than to sit at the water's edge waiting for a bite. But I have to say, given that fish stocks are declining and our waters are polluted, maybe the pleasure is perhaps somewhat tempered these days. Well, we have on the line Henny Krauss. He's a serious fisherman. He's author of, amongst other titles, the ABC of, uh, of Fishing, Top Angling Fishes of Southern Africa, as well as a newer book called Catch It and Cook Him. We've got him on the line. Hi, Henny. So are you a fisher of note? Have you been fishing all your life? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I grew up fishing with my mum and dad. My dad was a provincial angler, so I had <clears throat> a lot of expertise to guide me in my younger days. And, and since then, yes, I've, I don't think I've ever stopped. OK. So for you, fishing is about sport or not? For me, fishing is sport, yes. Yeah. yes. I do a, I do a lot of uh, tagging from the shore. Uh, most, most of the fish I catch from the shore, I tag and put back in the water. Oh, okay. Well, that's very thoughtful. I'm just thinking, you know, when you were a kid and your your dad was a provincial angler there, was the situation very different? I mean, issues of climate would have been, you know, not even on the radar, really. Yes, you know, just to... Those days, uh, catching edible fish was um, far more easier than than it is today. And uh, I suppose I always call it people pressure. I think, you know... Um, the coastline has became so accessible to everybody, especially in the days gone by when people uh, had four by fours and could go anywhere along the beach and visit uh, pieces of the coastline where you not, wouldn't no- normally get to. And uh, well, that that just put more and more pressure on the on the the near zone, the, the near the coasts, and, uh, and the end result is that. Uh, Fishing definitely declined. So, yeah, so we've encroached on the wild in, in terms of fishing as well. Um, yeah, I suppose so. You know, it, it always used to be so nice to go to a place and feel like that you've discovered something new. Nowadays, when, you, when you've when you walked a couple of hundred meters or whatever and you get to the spot, you find an empty cool drink tin or a plastic bag mm. and it just shows you that... You're not the only one who's been there, and uh, that sense of adventure is no longer there. Does that mean that they might also have fished out the fishes that that were there? Because, I mean, we know from the commercial fishing that it's, you know, stocks are seriously depleted. People are sending out great big nets the size of many, many rugby fields and picking up all sorts of things that they do or don't want. But one would like to think that with fishermen, you know, and fisherwomen with their with their one-off rods, that they're not um, they're not necessarily just overfishing. They're only fishing what they want to fish. Yes, uh, that is normally the case from the shore. But you know, there are still people that, especially with with uh, fish like elf or shad. When they go on the run, um, they, they, they're fairly easy to catch. And there are still people that, instead of catching their bag limit, will make sure, make, just take every fish that they possibly can catch. And uh, it's just being totally irresponsible. Tell me about the bag limit. What is that? I mean, how, w- what is the limit? Well, for various, for various species, there are, the scientists have determined a bag limit to to be uh, deemed to be safe if, if fishermen stick to that particular bag limit for that particular species, then the, then, uh, the survival of the species is far more guaranteed than what it normally would be.
So is the bag limit, is that per day, per week, per season? That's normally per day. You have a bag limit for, for our national fish, the Holyun. You can catch a, a four fish. Uh, you can take home two fish per, 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 per day. Mm. And elf, you can take home four. So uh, there's definitely a limit for, for most fish nowadays. Is, is Holyun on the threatened list? Uh, the Holyun, yes. They're, they're, they're on the not for sale not uh, on the on the red list, yes. Yeah. Are there? I mean, I'm really ignorant in this uh, respect. I have to, you know, put my put my cards on the table. Are there more environmentally friendly ways of fishing than others? I mean, you know, according to your bait that you use, according to what time of day you use, according to the breeding season. Oh yes. Now look, there's 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 seasons. You know, for the two species I've just mentioned, there's a season for halyun. There's a closed season for halyun to ensure that when the fish are in a row, that that they in the, in the breeding season, that they're not being caught. And similarly for elf, there's a, a closed season for many species. There's a, a season that they, they're not to be caught, which ensures that the fish get a, at, at least get a chance to breed. Similarly, there's a, a size limit for 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 species as well. That ensures that 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 fish get to a certain uh, size where they can can uh, reproduce before they get, get they get caught. Who monitors that? Well, there's um, uh, various various uh, um, groups that will do that um, along the Natal Coastal and Natal Coastline. There'll be the Natal Parks Board that will look after that that part of the. And then along along the coast from the Orange River around to to, uh, to Transkei, where Old Transkei would be um, a marine coastal management or Department of Agriculture and Fisheries, as it's now called. Are they able to do a sufficiently good job? I mean, we've got we've got you know kilometres and kilometres of, of uh, um, sort of river riverbed river edge. You know that no, they can't possibly uh, be monitoring all that. Is there a lot of out of season fishing? Is there a lot of what would you call it poaching? Oh yes, oh yes, it's still happening a lot. A lot of that's still happening. And uh, nowadays, with uh, with uh, constraints on on government budgets, it's it's happening even more. Yeah, so there's a little bit of a concern there. What about the pollution factor? We, you know, we were talking earlier about cigarettes and cigarette butts, and how many of them end up in the seas and the rivers. And how very, in fact, we learnt that if you put one, just a single cigarette butt in a in a dish with some water and a fish, the fish will die. Um, what sort of effect is pollution having on our rivers and on our fish stocks? Well, the the rivers, the rivers. I, I'm certainly no expert to to ask that, but I would presume that with all the dams that are being put across rivers and and the natural flow of rivers being restricted. Um, the clean-out process is not as good as it was maybe 50, 60 years ago. So it, surely there's a there's a yes a higher incidence of pollution in, in our rivers, along our coast. Um, uh, you know we we have uh, our our wind systems that blows certainly our wind systems in the in the Western Cape in the in the winter months when you get the south south southwesterly stormy swells uh, certainly clears up the areas. But in in in, in lagoons uh, and and protected bays, there's certainly a good chance of, of pollution playing a role. Hmm. You mentioned earlier that you know we're talking about elf and chad and chaloon. It's becoming increasingly difficult to catch edible fish. What are the inedible fishes? Well, 
you know, uh, inedible fishes were normally the sharks and the rays. Uh, nowadays, quite a few of the shark species are being eaten as well, so I suppose one, one should be rather more specific. I know the mako shark, uh, one of the species I've included in my in my book, uh, is quite delicious to eat. Um, there's quite a few, uh, the, the uh, a fish called the falhai, or taupe, is also, uh, it's, Traditionally, it was caught in the um, in the Hansby uh, Manus area, and um, the fish, the, the the flesh of the fish is made into a fish botong, and it's quite quite nice to eat. Hmm. I, I'm just thinking. I, I was in uh, Limpopo some while ago on the Mohalakwena River, and there were a proliferation of is it barbel yes. catfish? Yes, yes. And are those edible? Yes. Uh, um, uh, in in America, I know they are, they are very popular in, in, the, in the southern parts of America. And uh, yes, they certainly are edible. Um, it's a damn ugly looking thing, so I, mm. I, I, mm. I don't, I'm not particularly yes. partial to eating. You wouldn't particularly want to catch one anyway, because it wouldn't <laughs> look at it. Yeah. But uh, talking of fish, I know that your latest book is Catch It and Cook It. Uh, do you have sort of environmentally friendly tips in term, in that book? Um, in, in, in all my, in all my books, you know, starting, starting right from the first one, my, my first one, uh, saltwater angling in Southern Africa, uh, right through top angling fishes, all along I try and, 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 uh, stress the fact that, you know, that a lot of the species are there, they're good angling fun, and, uh, not particularly good to eat, and, and, uh, one should, should respect that and, and, put them back and, and let somebody else ex- uh, experience the pleasure of catching them. How much harm do you do to a fish? I mean, you talked about tagging them. Once you've caught it, taken it out of the water, tagged it, by which I, I assume you put some sort of little device on it? A spaghetti, it's this little spaghetti tube that you use a stainless steel uh, tube to put it through in, in the dorsal area. And no, look at, it's been done scientifically for many, many years. And if, that, if it would have been detrimental, the the good results we get uh, on, on tag return would, would not have been there. Uh, and what sort of results do you get? Does it give you an idea of how many there are? Yes, what normally happens is, is um, one can assume that, that um, you know, the, the, the percentage, you know how many fish you tagged, and, and if, if your tags have been spread uh, randomly through the, 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 the fishing area, you can normally uh, relate... Your, your catch return a percentage and uh, extrapolate that back to a, a stock size. So mm. it gives you an idea of how many fish there are, but, but secondly, it gives you, once you tag, when we tag a fish, we also measure the fish. And that gives you, over the, over the time that, you, that it's been free, gives you an, an idea of the growth rate. And also thirdly, a migrate, migration, you know, where you tag it and where, you've, where, where it's been caught. Just lastly, Henny, what's the best way to cook a fish that you've just caught? Well, it depends on the species. I mean, there's there's our national fish, the chalyun. The nicest way to cook that is is to split it and put it on the put it on the braai. Rock lobsters, you you know, a a rock lobster simply simply boiled a rock lobster. Uh, if you don't overcook it, and, and I, here I must stress that we want to stress throughout that uh, book, uh, catch it and cook it, is firstly how to look after the fish once you've caught it, 
to make sure that your that when you get it home that it's um, in in the best best condition. You know, keep it cool and uh, whatever. And then also never ever to overcook your fish. Fish should you should be very very careful in in, in how long you've cooked it. Normally, I say if you think it's done, it you've already you're already too late. <laughs> So as you quite rightly say in the in your title, catch it and cook it very quickly. Lovely. Henny Krauss, thank you very much for joining us. Best of luck. Thank you and happy fishing. A pleasure. Take care. Henny Krauss, author of amongst other things, Catch It and Cook It, and that's published by Streak. Well, if fishing is tempered with guilt just a little bit these days, I guess golf is also probably up there with the guilty hobbies. And in a minute, we're going to find out about the cost in environmental terms, or certainly water terms, of golf courses. But first up in our green goodie slot, the environmentally friendly or hydrogen-fueled golf cart, we have on the line Dr. Siva Pasupati. Hi, may I call you Siva? Yes, please. Lovely. Hi. Nice to have you with us, telling us about this uh, fun little golf cart. Just explain. I mean, I thought all... Well, I don't really know much about golf carts, so you tell me about how this one is different. Certainly. You know, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. You know, this golf cart is a road-legal one. Usually you don't find golf carts road-legal, but <laughs> this is a commercial golf cart. So this is basically for, you know, uh, to do some shuttle services between uh, uh, city centers and to deliver some uh, pizzas or something like that. Oh, okay. So it's so kind it's, of a commercial yeah. vehicle. Okay, so it's not just for tootling around golf courts. Exactly. Courses. Okay. It, and uh, that's where the hydrogen comes in. This golf cart is basically battery-powered one, mm-hmm. and in that sort, it is green. And uh, but it was limited with its range. You know, it can't drive much further. It needs to be recharged. So. Yeah. Obviously, uh, that was when we came into the picture and uh, we converted this golf cart into a hydrogen-fueled one and we extended the range about twice of the existing range. So we made it run twice more distance than it was running earlier. Okay. Sounds like it has a fuel or, or potential, if you like, for something much, much bigger. Just explain how you fuel anything on hydrogen. It's straightforward and simple. It's similar to a fueling station which you have, uh, you know, like a BP garage or something, mm-hmm. where you fill with petrol. Here you will be filling with hydrogen. And But since it is a gas, you need to take precautions and, you know, similar accordingly the fittings which is required. And you can charge up to the pressure which the tank can take. So it's basically an infrastructure, a refilling infrastructure, which unfortunately it's still not here in South Africa. We are refilling our golf carts at our university, at the University of the Western Cape. And, um, you know, from from the existing uh, compressed cylinder bottles. Okay. It it sounds like it has the potential to be a little bit dangerous. And as you fill it it up, I'm sort of thinking it's a little bit like uh, filling up a a rugby ball or something. You know, you just keep pumping it up. What is the chamber into which you're putting it? There's a specialized container which is fitted into this golf carts, a compressed cylinder, which is made up of carbon fibers and which is rated to the, the required compression so our cylinders can hold up to 350 bars safely and uh, the compression what we are filling up is only up to 200 bars 
since we don't have the infrastructure to fill it up to 350 bar. And it's absolutely safe. It's similar to a petrol station. You know, you need to be, you need to take precautions, mm. similar to the ones you take in other refilling stations. But other than that, there is nothing. Now, one more thing, this hydrogen is lighter than air. You know, if there is any leak, this goes straight up. It doesn't, you know, accumulate and uh, create an explosion. Okay. And the hydrogen itself, it's not dangerous? I mean, if it, if it does leak, it's not toxic in any way? It is not toxic. You know, if it leaks in an open space, like, like you know, outside, it directly goes upwards through the air and it doesn't lead to explosion unless it is, you know, kept within the mm. limits. It doesn't lead to any explosion. But indoors, if it leaks, the hydrogen can accumulate within the walls and that might lead to an explosion. But you will have sensors, you know, which detects the leak and which shut down the valve immediately. Does this have potential to grow into something much larger? I and mean, we're talking about a little road, road legal golf cart here. But, I mean, could it be, is it a principle that could be used for vehicles bigger and longer and stronger? Exactly. You know, this is the first step, basically. You know, we, we just want to demonstrate the technology that is working and it is delivering the required thing and it is reliable and so on. But the aim of our center, of our, our center is ISO Systems Competence Center, which is funded by Department of Science and Technology. The, the aim is to have real vehicles, you know, passenger vehicles uh, fueled with hydrogen and fuel cell and to use it for commercial purposes. Where does hydrogen come from? Huh, it's a very good question. You know, currently the hydrogen is still coming from fossil fuels. You know, there's a lot of hydrogen production in the world for different industries. As a byproduct or deliberately produced? Deliberately produced okay. and as a byproduct. In petroleum industries, you have hydrogen, you need uh, hydrogen day, and uh, mostly it is produced from fossil fuels as a product. And, you, and there are uh, lots of applications for hydrogen already you know, in several industries. Yeah. But the ideal scenario will be to produce hydrogen from renewable power sources using water, you know, to split water and produce hydrogen from that. Okay. And that will be a truly green solution where there is no greenhouse emissions at all. And But that is still a little bit far, we can call it. Mm. Yeah, but, but the, the research and uh, all other activities are directed towards that. So, just going back to the 350 bars that you can safely put into one of these little things, what do you call them, by the way? You mean the compressed cylinders? Yeah, well, no, the, the actual little, the little road-legal golf cart. Yes, it's hydrogen-fueled golf cart, oh, you know. okay. Yeah, hydrogen-fueled or hydrogen-powered, any, any one of those. Okay. And how far can it go on its 350 bars? The currently, without the hydrogen, it can go up to 50 kilometres. And with hydrogen, we can double it, and it goes up to 100 kilometers. And it is not limited, you know, it's not, the only thing limits the distance is how much hydrogen you can put it on the golf cart. If we can double the hydrogen, if you use more cylinders, and if you double the hydrogen, it can still run much further. Hmm. And the, is the technology, is it very expensive? Currently, it is expensive. I'm afraid it is expensive, yeah. and uh, uh, one of the reasons is there are only few manufacturers and the products which are used are not mass-produced. 
and they are they are all hand made and or in low quantities made in low quantities and that's one of the reason for the high cost and it is not a mature technology yet you know there are still a few challenges so the cost is still high when compared to other technologies well it's early days and these things all take a, a while to get sorted receiva thank you so much very best of luck and may it uh, take off as i'm sure it will big time thank you thank you okay. very much thank you Dr. Siva Pasupati and his program manager combined heat and power program at the University of the Western Cape. Well, lastly, whilst you may be busy saving the planet in your carbon-free golf buggy, what about the course itself? With an idea of the costs involved, environmentally speaking, on the line, we have Jeremy Westgarth-Taylor, who's the founder of Water Rhapsody, so he's a seriously green, water-minded man, and we've got him on the line. Hi, Jeremy. Hello. Nice to have you with us. So tell us a little bit about golf. I'm sure this is not going to be good news for golfers, but just how sustainable are golf courses? How much, how greedy are they? Give us a rundown. Well, uh, well, most golf courses um, will be uh, around about a thousand hectares of land, and golf courses, in, in order for them to look like those green grass golf courses will use between 10 millimeters and 25 millimeters per square meter per day. And that relates into um, 10 to 25 liters per square meter per day. So in terms of um, perhaps agriculture, it is more water and, and thirstier than any other form of, of uh, agriculture. And um, it's not just a question of um, the availability of the water, because they'll tell you that they're going to be getting the water from uh, uh, wastewater, which is a sewage treatment works, or, or uh, uh, it's groundwater. But the effect of taking that water out of the ground has an effect somewhere else. And indeed, even um, well-treated wastewater, as they need to have, um, when that water runs into somewhere, um, and it has to run eventually into a river and then into an estuary, we have no more working estuaries left um, in, on the coastline between the, 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 the mouth of the Breda River and the mouth of the Berg River, and that's some 1,600 kilometers uh, mm. of coastline. And if there are no working estuaries left, uh, one has to try and work out why. And golf courses are one of the worst culprits of, of taking water away from the estuaries. And we, we can give you two quick examples. There's the, the Botriva Lagoon and there's the Hermanus Lagoon. Uh, both of these um, are, um, are amazing sources of, of where fish breed and grow um, uh, until they're large enough to, be, to swim out to sea. And the list of those fish goes on and on, but uh, a, a basic list of those, we all know, the Cobb Cabalio, the Red and White, the Stirnbrass, uh, the Leophus, um, are, and, the, and the stump nose are all fish that, that used to be plentiful along our coast. Um, and yes, they have been fished out to a large degree, but also their, their spawning grounds have been destroyed. And unfortunately, um, the, the, the biggest culprit of these, um, taking so much water away from these estuaries, because uh, mm. they're sort of drinking it up before it before it can get an opportunity to get down to the estuary. Those are huge figures. I think between 10, 10 and twenty five liters per square meter per uh, day. Per I'm day. just thinking, what is the average uh, water um, literage of water per household? 
Well, um, a household rated at, say, um, 1,000 square meters of, of ground area uh, might use um, perhaps 1,000 liters per day. So that's far, far, far less. Um, and that includes bath, shower, hand basin, toilet flushing. Um, and um, it, remember that a lot of this water can be used twice anyway. So the grey water with bath, shower, hand basin and laundry water can be used for irrigation purposes. So that means that the, the, the volume of water, uh, which is minimized anyway, of water that um, reaches the sewer line, um, it, it's only the toilet flushing and, and, the, uh, and the kitchen water, the wastewater from the kitchen is the, is the minimalistic water that um, goes down into the sewer line, and the rest of it is, is grey water, uh, which can be can be used um, to, to great advantage. Is there no possibility that grey water can be used on um, the genuine wastewater? Grey water can be used on golf courses. Oh yes, it is. Um, it's a little misnomer, um, grey water, in this instance, because it's treated effluent from the sewage treatment works. Mm. It actually should be called what it is, um, treated effluent. Yeah. And, it, and it is used um, on golf courses. Um, and that is the very excuse that golf courses use to say, hey, wait a second, we aren't taking any water away um, from the supply line, which is true. But they are taking it away from where it could be and should be going yeah. uh, into an estuary. And, uh, and then they also might say that the water goes through and into the ground and then um, runs into the estuary thereafter. And that's not true because 99% um, uh, of the water is evaporated into the air and, and uh, is completely lost. Yeah. We also know that uh, treated effluent can be treated sufficiently well to become drinking water. So, you know, we, we can't assume that it's rotten water that we can't use anywhere else because it's not necessarily the case. What do you see as the long-term option if people are going to continue playing golf? across the world, and not least here in South Africa, which is very water-scarce. What's the solution? Well, Brown golf courses? Well, indeed, um, there are plenty of sand golf courses around the world, I'm, I'm told. I, I'm not a golfer myself, so, so I, I uh, have only seen these sort of golf courses, but I have seen them in the Karoo, uh, and I have seen them in Namibia, um, where, where there's hardly a, a square metre except for the greens uh, of... Um, of green grass, and one has to analyze actually why it's demanded. I'm sure it's lovely to, to see this beautiful stretch of green grass mm. uh, and to um, get off your golf course, uh, golf cart, and uh, walk uh, on, on this uh, beautiful green um, and, and, um, and strike a ball into a hole. Uh, <laughs> it, uh, why do I know you're not a golfer? <laughs> I don't know. You can work it out, I think. Yeah, I can see that it, it's a problem, but those statistics are really kind of scary. Well, we'll talk to you another day, Jeremy, perhaps about what you do there at Water Rhapsody, but I think one of your things is actually to conserve water, uh, to, to produce uh, water, uh, ha rainwater harvesting systems and recycling water. So perhaps we'll get you back another day on that score. But will people find on your website, will they find information about um, water conservation? Oh, oh absolutely. Will they find any golf hints on your website? <laughs> No, not so no, much. No, no, um, nothing on path. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll leave it at that. Jeremy Westgarth-Taylor, thank you very much, and thanks for those rather scary and frightening statistics. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Jeremy Westgarth-Taylor, well, if you would like to know a little bit more about uh, Water Rhapsody, but as I say, we'll perhaps find out a little bit more about what they do at a later stage. The website is www.waterrhapsody, and that's spelled W-A-T-E-R-R-H-A-P-S-O-D-Y. 
www.co.za, waterrhapsody.co.za. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do that. You can contact us at uh, enviro at safm.co.za, enviro at safm.co.za. So thanks very much, team. That's Cassie Lowe, it's Kim Winters, I'm Nancy Richards. Up next, it's time for the news, but not before we've handed over to Mr Music, Stephen Kirker. <laughs>